This upcoming week, I will be traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday, as I'm sure many of you will be. I'll be going back to my hometown, Ledgerd, Connecticut, a by and large unremarkable town tucked into the southeast corner of the state. That said, Ledgerd does have one Episcopal Church-related claim to fame. It is the birthplace of Samuel Seabury, the first bishop of the Episcopal Church. Seabury was born there in 1729. He attended Yale, where he studied theology. He was ordained shortly after, and he spent his years of ministry as a priest serving parishes in New Jersey and New York. If any of you have seen the musical Hamilton, you'll know that Seabury was a loyalist during the American Revolution. And initially, in the aftermath of the war, he was planning to immigrate to Nova Scotia, where the king had promised every loyalist refugee 200 acres of land to make a fresh start. However, Seabury received word, as he was preparing to leave, that a meeting of clergy in Connecticut had elected him as their bishop. And despite his loyalist politics, despite the promise of living out his days in relative ease in Canada, Seabury instead decided that his election had entrusted him with something, that he was responsible now for helping to build this new church in this new country. Because current bishops are the only ones who can ordain new bishops, and because there were no bishops in the Americas, Seabury braved a voyage across the Atlantic to England but all the English bishops flatly refused to ordain him, having no interest in helping the rebellious colonies set up a new church. After over a year of trying and failing to convince the English bishops, Seabury made his way to Scotland, where the bishops were far more agreeable. And it was there in Aberdeen on November 14, 1784, 239 years ago this last week, that Seabury was finally ordained the first bishop of the Americas. The parable of the talents is the last in a series of parables that we've encountered over Sundays this summer and into this fall. And in this case, it involves a rich man who entrusts three servants with differing amounts of talents, a talent being a large sum of money, equal to a dozen or more years' worth of pay for an average day laborer. The man departs, and in his absence, two of his servants invest the capital, while the third simply buries his single talent in the ground. Upon the owner's return, the first two servants are praised and rewarded, while the third is reprimanded and cast into the outer darkness." Now, if this word talent, meaning a large sum of money, strikes you as quite similar to the English word talent, meaning an innate ability, your instincts are correct. The word talent entered the English language during the Middle Ages, and by that time, the popular interpretation of this parable was that the talents represented not literal money, but metaphorically symbolized each person's God-given abilities. According to this interpretation, then, the parable's lesson is not to squander our gifts, but rather to use them for a multiplying effect. As always with parables, there are differing interpretations. 
And one thing I always consider when interpreting them is context. Where does a particular parable sit in the larger arc of that gospel? In this case, Jesus teaches this parable to his disciples in the final days of his ministry, just before his arrest and execution. Indeed, it is the very last parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew's gospel. With this in mind, we might say that Jesus is the rich man who is about to depart. The servants are his followers, his disciples, and the talents, they aren't money, they're not our own individual abilities. No, they represent the gospel. They are the good news, the ministry of reconciliation that the disciples, the church, indeed we today are entrusted with and are called to spread, to live out, to multiply. Jesus knows that he is about to go away and he is trying one last time to emphasize the responsibilities that his followers bear. I don't know about any of you, but this can feel to me like a rather daunting responsibility. The gospel is such an inconceivably large and beautiful and serious thing. Surely it doesn't need little old me. And even if it did, where in the world would I begin? Something that strikes me as a little bit funny about the parable of the talents is that the rich man doesn't actually give any directions to his servants about what to do with the talents. He just hands them over and leaves. How are the servants supposed to know what to do? It gives me a little bit of sympathy for that third servant. That said, I think this sense of ambiguity, it provides an accurate parallel to the life of discipleship. Although the teachings of Jesus and the call of the gospel are clear in a broad sense, what they specifically mean for each of our individual lives can be difficult to determine. Indeed, the work of discernment often begins with the honest assessment that we have no idea what to do and no idea what God wants for us. In seminary, a classmate introduced me to a collection of Bishop Seabury's discourses Scanning through them this week, I found Seabury's own commentary on the parable of the talents. And one observation that he made that I found particularly illuminating is pointing out that what the servants, and by extension what we, are ultimately judged on is not production, per se, but what Seabury calls improvement, what we might call care or attention. There's a temptation in this parable to make it into a sort of religious benchmarks, a holy test that only the best, only those who have the highest return on investment will receive God's reward. But Seabury points out both the servant with five talents and the one with two, they each received the same in the end. They both entered into the joy of the Lord despite their differing totals. Ultimately, this parable is not about, it, it, what this parable is about is neglect versus care. Whether our faith is something that we take for granted, that we shut away like a treasure underground, or that we continue to cultivate during our lives. Whether the gospel is something that we pay lip service to from time to time, or is it something that we try, however imperfectly, to live out day by day. Seabury himself proves, I think, a rich example to us. At the time of his ordination, it was not unusual for bishops to exercise their office in, let us say, a primarily ceremonial way. Lots of emphasis on the pomp and circumstance, less on the day-to-day -day work. But Seabury always appreciated the mundane. He embraced it with unusual zeal. Upon returning to the U.S., he poured himself into the tedious task of helping to establish the new national church, 
undeterred by fierce criticism that he encountered from those here who rejected his very ordination. Back in Connecticut, he was constantly on the road visiting parishes throughout the state, and his go-to advice to his clergy was to be useful, to focus on the ways that they made a real impact in their communities. And his favorite sermon topic was charity, that we should always be giving to the least of these and sharing and helping. In a sign that he lived by his own pronouncements when Seabury died in 1796, his net worth was a measly 224 pounds, less than an average annual salary for a bishop. All of us have been entrusted with our own little sliver of the gospel, our own bit of heavenly treasure, which God is hoping that we share with this world. Today is a chance for us to consider the ways that maybe we are neglecting that responsibility and to treat it with renewed sense of care and attention. Perhaps you already have a specific sense of what living out the gospel looks like for you in your life, or perhaps like me, you often feel like you have no idea where to start when it comes to responding to God's call. If you're in this latter category, I'd offer two thoughts. The first is to consider the example of Seabury, especially his instructions to be useful and charitable. We might ask ourselves, where is their need in this world, whether small or large? How do my gifts align with them? What is there something today that I can do to alleviate it? We might also ask, who are the poor in my community? Who are the most vulnerable, and how might I live my life today for them and not for myself? Second, I'll offer a prayer of reflection, really, from the mystic Thomas Merton. This was a prayer that was shared with me at the very beginning of my own discernment process that led to my ordination. And it was a time in my life where I truly did not know where I was going or what I was doing. And what this prayer always reminds me is that discernment and living out the gospel are not, in my experience, a sense of knowing all the details, of having everything mapped out five and 10 and 20 years ahead of time. No, it is much more about paying attention to the here and the now, of taking the next right step and the next right step, of being open, as Seabury was to his surprise election, to the way that God's call might unexpectedly crash into our own life, of trusting that God is working alongside us the whole time. Merton writes, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so, but I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing, and I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more 
at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at The Chapel of the Cross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the Word to serve in the world.